Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active word of God, his two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, July 23rd, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 16. In the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah is given a choice. Go to Babylon or stay in Judah. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you for having me back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Cook, let's talk a little bit of context. Again, in chapter 39, we saw Jerusalem fall. We're in the aftermath of that. Anything to to pick out of that context, the historical situation Jeremiah finds himself in, that will help us as we prepare to read chapter 40 today? Uh, No, that's it. Uh, Jeremiah has, has fallen, so what happens you know, what happens after that is uh, chapter 40 in a kind of anecdotal, uh, that's not the right word, kind of an analogous form. If you uh, have been a pastor in a family where somebody has had a long battle with cancer, you, you know, the day finally comes when they breathe their last and you're kind of looking around and you start to ask that question, well, now what? Oh. And uh, chapter 40 uh, does that. So everything has been leading up, and by everything I mean hundreds of years of proclamation, uh, all of the book of Jeremiah have been leading up to this monumentous occasion that is the fall of Jerusalem, and um, well, the world keeps turning, and so something's going to happen next, and that's what we get in chapter 40. It it does have that feel of the, you know, the now what, there's almost this sigh of relief, and, and it is a, a section of of history, I'll say, that I know is not always on my radar. You know, Second Kings ends basically with what we read about in yesterday's text in, in Jeremiah chapter 39 and, and other historical books, you know, like Ezra and Nehemiah kind of skip over some of this stuff. And, and, you know, we can be honest, I think, in order to get to this history, you sometimes have to plow through 39 chapters of Jeremiah, which isn't always the, the easiest task for, for those who want to read straight through. So some of the stuff that, that we're encountering in this text and then the, the coming chapters is, is stuff that, that honestly, I'd, I'd kind of, I'm not as familiar with. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading it with you and, and discovering, you know, well, what is this now? What? How does the world keep turning as we see it after the the fall of Jerusalem any i mean just in terms of what we're going to see as a as a whole is there is there much that's different do you, do you think the people of of Judah at this point have they i don't know if i can put this in quotes learned their lesson at this point yet no i think they're always uh slow to learn their lesson um I, I will make an argument that the the people who most needed to learn this lesson did not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, that's a sad reality um, of the, our sinful nature in the people of God that does showcase a fair amount of 
God's stick with it grace that he continues to abide with and among his people um, in spite of their recalcitrant attitudes. So uh, I, I resonate with you um, this, uh, this text. Uh, I spent a fair amount of this amount of time in this text because of this radio program. Uh, and I, I very much, you know, was you know, not a lot of uh, recognizable landmarks here. So, um, but it's uh, God's word, and it certainly has uh, something to share with us. And it's probably a good. Um, well, of course, it's God's good word to us. But we'll uh, we'll we'll enjoy what we find and discover that Christ is here too. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's dig in then. We're in Jeremiah chapter forty, the word of God for you and for me. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it, wherever you think it good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present, and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land." That's through verse six of Jeremiah chapter 40. So we, we kind of pick up here, Pastor Cook, a, a bit of a, 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 an end, a loose end from Jeremiah chapter 39. We had heard Nebuchadnezzar give instructions concerning Jeremiah in the previous chapter and heard a little bit, but we get a little more detail here in chapter 40. And it starts with, I think, fairly familiar language to us at the beginning of the first verse, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. That's not surprising that the prophet receives word from the Lord. But then it's connected to the captain of the guard, this Babylonian, Nebuzaradan, and and he's the one that does most of the talking in this section. So what are we to make of this, this word from the Lord that comes to Jeremiah, and then we hear a bunch of talk from the Babylonian? Well, we. My first takeaway is that God speaks through means. Um, you know, uh, quote often attributed to Luther about if he can speak through a donkey, uh, he can speak through other people, and and that's that's true. In our day to day experience, we often ask, well, how do we know if, if this is the word of God or not? And that's a separate question. Um, because God now speaks to us through his son, Jesus, but this is before the incarnation of Christ. And so we have the word of God uh, coming to, um, to Jeremiah through this uh, captain of a uh, foreign army. And now I, I will acknowledge on the air that there's a debate about whether or not this is the word of the Lord. 
uh, or if the word of the Lord reference in Jeremiah 40 verse 1 is actually indicating uh, a text that we get significantly later in chapter 41. Um, I don't uh, think that is a particularly compelling argument, uh, and because it doesn't in any way conflict with God's ability to communicate uh, through people, um, even uh, people, uh, even through um, pagans or unsuspecting characters. Um, I think it's just natural that this is this is God's word uh, spoken, probably unwittingly through the captain. I would imagine if we could interview the captain and said, hey, did you know you were speaking God's word? Um, they, he would say no. In the same way that the Roman centurion at the end of the Gospel of Mark says, truly this was the Son of God. You know, mm-hmm. um, He's probably unaware that he's speaking words that will be received forever and read in churches until Christ's return, <laughs> as this is the word of the Lord. So. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, a separate kind of um, beautiful symbolism there anyway with the, with the fall of Jerusalem and now a word through a captain of a foreign army and the fall of Christ, his crucifixion, and the centurion speaking. But maybe we can save that for later in the episode. Sure. Yeah, I think that that'd be good for some reflections toward the end. So in, in terms of what we, we find out, maybe some of the, the nuts and bolts of this text, because we're going to get a little bit of, of geography, Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so the first place we're, we're going to meet is Rama, and we're going to see a couple other places later where Gedaliah is at, at Mizpah. In terms of geography, where where are we in the land of Judah in this text? Yeah, uh, Rama just associate Rama with the city of Bethlehem where Christ is born. Uh, and that's the easiest um, kind of mnemonic device there. They're nearby. In fact, they're equated with one another. When in Matthew chapter two, the Herod slaughters, the Holy Innocents, as they're called. Um, he cites Jeremiah chapter 31, Rachel crying, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted in Rama. So Rama is, oh, I don't know, about eight miles or so, five, five miles, maybe five and a half miles north of Jerusalem. And this makes sense. The Babylonians are um, north. Egypt is south of Israel. So the Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem, and they are dragging people into exile. And so everybody who's leaving Jerusalem, they're all traveling north, and we're told that. Jeremiah has uh, chains on his hands, giving us the impression that he is along and among the exiles being carted to Babylon. And uh, so, yeah, he's in Ramah, about five, five and a half miles away to the north. And Mizpah's even further north than that. So we're we're in the north of Jerusalem because, again, it's been destroyed, so it's not going to be suitable for life after the Babylonian conquest. We're going to have to be in different cities. Jeremiah is currently in chains, as you pointed out, and Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, comes to him and and probably, as you said, unwittingly begins to speak out of his pagan lips a, a true theological interpretation of of what's happened. Now, I mean, I, you know, I suppose you know we could. Uh, this is perhaps speculation, but you know, he's he may have heard from some of 
the deserters who've already come to Babylon, some of the things that Jeremiah has been preaching. And now he's going to remind Jeremiah of those things. And, and as you said, like, does he know what he's saying and how true it is? Perhaps not. But but what he is going to say to Jeremiah is, in fact, true and matches up with what Jeremiah has already preached. So take us into these first couple of things that the Nebuchadnezzar reminds Jeremiah about, you know, what's the interpretation of the event that, that comes out of his lips? Yeah, the, the first thing he says in, in verse 2 is, uh, the Lord your God, and he, Lord Yahweh, uh, so the divine name, uh, pronounced this disaster against this place. So he's just acknowledging uh, this was the will of God. This was, this was uh, you know, and then he kind of puts it, your God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar does not claim Yahweh as his own Lord, um, but he, he acknowledges this, this was the will of your God. Um, so that's the first thing he, he says. Uh, then he uh, becomes redundant. He says it again in verse 3. Uh, the Lord has uh, brought it about. And then he offers, um, and then he says, uh, he has done as he said. And so indicating that this is uh, not, a, should not be a surprise to anybody. God said he was going to do it. He did it. And then he says, because you sinned against the Lord, did not obey his voice, this thing has, has come upon you. So um, your your idea of speculation, you know, maybe captain of the guard has been listening to uh, people offer up a theological interpretation, you know, the exiles as they trudge their way up to Babylon. Um, and now he's uh, speaking with a prophet. And so what do you do when you uh, speak with a prophet? You probably speak to them about prophet things in the same way that when I meet up uh, with uh, maybe uh, I see, bump into a mechanic at the grocery store, we, you know, I try to speak and about mechanic things, you know, cars or et cetera. So it's just kind of natural. This shouldn't surprise us. But um, the surprise, of course, is that he's right. He's absolutely right. And he's right in a way that the Israelites were not, which is what led to this mess to begin with. Mm. Well, I mean, it's not all that different, say, when you're, you know, you're wearing your, your clerical and, and someone that you don't know just comes up to you and starts talking theology with you because they know that, that you're a pastor. And, and in this case, Nebuchadnezzar, when he starts talking theology with the prophet, he actually gets it right. He actually says what the prophet himself has been preaching. And, and of the things that he's, he's said so far in these you know, verses two and three is, is perhaps among, among the most important things we can pull out theologically is that the the Lord has done what he said. The Lord did not fail to do the things that that he said he was going to do, which really, I mean, now that I'm I'm thinking about it, it it goes all the way back to what the Lord told Jeremiah in the very first chapter when he, he showed him that almond branch and the Lord told Jeremiah that he was watching over his word to perform it. And here Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that, that what the Lord says, the Lord does. Yeah, there's. Uh, <laughs> I it should never come as a surprise, and and yet and yet it does, um, for uh, especially the the people of God, um, who we we marvel, 
kind of the hindsight 2020 uh, we're disassociated spectators when we read this chapter of the Bible. And so we want to say, come on, why didn't, how can you not see the writing on the wall? How do you not understand what's going on here? Um, but um, again, our own stubborn, sinful nature, we're, we're, we're guilty of this too. And uh, so here, just, yeah, it's a it's a marvel. Hey, God has he's carried in he's carried out his word. And his word, uh, as we hear from the author to the Hebrews, uh sharper than any two edged sword. Um so we often speak of God's word as both law and gospel. In this instance we can maybe put different labels um on that or nuance it a bit. We're talking about God has made a promise regarding judgment. Uh, and we often um, rejoice and predominantly speak as the people of God today about God's promise of grace, life, and salvation. Um, but lest we get too distracted, we should remember that God has also said a word uh, about about judgment. He said a word about judgment concerning the city of Jerusalem and Jeremiah and his day. And he said a word about judgment um, that we confess in the creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Um, so, uh, or as the prophet says, um, not prophet, the Apostle Paul, First Thessalonians, he, how Jesus' death rescues us from the wrath of God to come. So, it's coming. Um, he's not lying about that. Mm. So, what are we going to do with this, this, word, with this word that we hear? Mm. Well, the the commander in his words gives a hint as to what the people of his day, the people of, of Judah in 587 BC, didn't do. He, he says they sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice. And that's why this has happened. That's that's how he puts it, which I, I think that probably applies as as what you were saying as well. When we think about judgment to come that, well, why? Because you sinned and did not obey his voice. That's the warning that's there Again, a word from the Lord through the lips of this Babylonian commander. Correct. And it's very much faith language. You know, we uh, are rightly sensitive about the idea that our merits are going to um, maybe earn salvation or or even on a lesser extent um, favor with God. We reject that as not being faithful to God's word. Um, we're not denying what the word of the Lord is saying here through the word, through the mouth of this captain, but to not obey the Lord, it's not so much about what you've accomplished and, and everything to do with trust. Hmm. Trust, which is another word for faith. It's, it's faithlessness here. This is, this is the consequence um, when you uh, refuse to trust in God, that's a violation of the first commandment. You should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, we say. And so when you decide to put your trust in something other than God, then guess what? God, the one true God, ceases to do for you the things that gods do, which is protect and serve. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's the natural outcome of unbelief is, is judgment. Um, the natural outcome of, un, of unbelief is not grace. It's not success. It's not thriving. Uh, it is It is death. It is sorrow. It is pain and uh, forsakenness. And so 
if you want to know how dangerous unbelief is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has given us uh, a pretty pretty clear and concise picture of that. Of course, through by God. <laughs> Now, in, in verse 4, then, Nebuchadnezzar makes an offer to Jeremiah. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you free. And then he says, you get to choose where you want to go, whatever seems good to you. If you want to go to Babylon, that's great. If you don't want to go to Babylon, you can stay here. It's, it's your choice. This is a, again, this is one of those places where I, I guess I, I had forgotten what was there. And I was, I was a bit surprised to hear this put to Jeremiah this way. What, what's going on here in this choice that's given to Jeremiah? That's a great question. Um, I, let me start with uh, a little level of uncertainty on my, on my front, um, where the verses two and three, where the captain is making this very clear theological evaluation of why things have turned out the way that they are. In my mind and in my heart, I have a very easy time connecting those two verses to the word of the God, word of God through Nebuchadnezzar. When we get to four and we have just this choice set before Jeremiah, the question I kept asking is, is this still the word of the Lord to Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar? So is this God telling Jeremiah you have this freedom? Or has Nebuchadnezzar kind of transitioned out of speaking uh, as a, you know an oracle from God, uh, and now he's just you know shifting into within my purview as a captain of the guard here? Um, I'm making this perk in life available to you? And my short answer is, I don't know. Um, I, neither one of those things would be contrary to God's word. Um, so I think both interpretations hold, hold merit. Um, two things. One, the invitation to go do what you think is good and right, you should go do that thing reminded me of Abraham and his nephew Lot when they're in the valley of, uh, you know, Gomorrah or Sodom there before, of course, the big destruction from God. It's, it's this lush place. And Abraham tells his nephew Lot, he says, go, go ahead and pick whatever land you want. Just, he gives them this freedom. Take, take what you want. I'll, I'll go where what's left. You do what's right. And, um, and here we, we see a similar thing. So there was just a neat little connection on that front. The other thought I had is the idea of um, if this is indeed still a word from God to Jeremiah, it reminds me of the anxiety um, or the struggles pastors have when deliberating a call. <laughs> where they've got a call from God to serve one congregation, they have a call now from God to serve another congregation, and there's literally no wrong choice. Um, both of them have a word from God. And so you uh, are, uh, pastors are in this really awkward, I, I having experienced that a few times, I, I find it to be an awkward situation where you just have to make a decision. <laughs> 
and uh, and uh, and both of them have have a blessing from the from the Lord, um, which is a um, uh, well, it's it's a unique experience in life. So he, so Jeremiah has that experience put before him. Uh, he says uh, he's been given an option. You can head on up to Babylon. I mean, Daniel does very well in Babylon. Uh, that goes very well, you know, for Daniel, all things considered. You know, forget the whole lion's den thing. He got through that all right, but um, or um, or or stay here, stay behind. So that's a choice set before him. Hmm. Well, what what strikes me about the choice set before him, and then the the choice that he ends up making of of staying in the land and going ahead and going to where Gedaliah is, and we'll find more about out, out about him in the rest of the text. Is that you know Jeremiah in in chapter twenty nine particularly and and in a few other places, Jeremiah has been told by the Lord and has proclaimed the Lord's word that it is in exile where the Lord will take care of His people, will bless His people, and certainly as you mentioned, Daniel stands as an example to it. So his his choice, given especially you know given what he said about hey you need to surrender to Babylon Zedekiah or you're going to die. Of course Zedekiah doesn't. I mean given given everything that Jeremiah has preached about how it, contrary to what the people must have thought or would have naturally thought that, that it's going to be in Babylon where the Lord is going to take care of his people, Jeremiah chooses to stay in Judah. It, and it, that strikes me as, as somewhat strange given what he's preached. What do you make of, of the choice? How should we understand? And, and if it is, you know, as you said, a, like a call situation where either way he's, he's got the blessing of God, what do you make of, of Jeremiah's choice ultimately to stay there in Judah? Yeah. Two, one of them is a little bit on speculation, the, which would be this. Um, to, I often wonder to what extent prophets communicated with one another. We see that especially in the book of Jeremiah, where he's communicating uh, with false prophets, right? I mean, so there's this, there seems to be some level of kind of, uh, I hate to say it this way, but, uh, you know, professional kind of relationship, Um among among the prophets, so let, maybe altruistically, um, Jeremiah is aware that you know what the exiles—they've uh, got some prophets uh, available to them. Um, <clears throat> maybe he's aware of that. Maybe he isn't. Uh, and so you know, the people here need a, need a word from God. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why he stays here. That would be very much in the vein of kind of the way you might deliberate a call, which is, well, how can I best serve uh, the people of God? Where is there a greater need? That, by the way, is all speculation, absolutely speculation. I didn't read that in any commentary. It's just just a thought. Let me, let me, uh, let me pause you there, Pastor Cook, with your speculative answer on this side of the break. And let's go ahead and take our, take our break right now so that you have plenty of time to give us your more, I'm guessing, firmly textually founded answer. So you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO talking Jeremiah chapter 40 with Pastor Tim Cook. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, July 23rd. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 16 with Pastor Tim Cook, who serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, I unceremoniously interrupted you previously as you were giving us two thoughts as, as to why Jeremiah chooses to stay there in Judah. One thought, speculative perhaps, but certainly a, a possibility, is that he knows that there are faithful prophets in exile already, so he chooses to stick around with Judah. What was your other thought, your other reason that Jeremiah perhaps gives or sticks around in Judah? Yeah, that would be, it's it's very characteristic of Scripture, the, the faithfulness of um, you know, blessed uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. So, um, as we should see Christ in Scripture, it shouldn't be um, uncommon for, I mean, for the prophets to look like the one they're heralding. Um, in fact, even in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is. He asked his disciples, ah, who do people say that I am? And it's, it's the Gospel of Matthew that has people calling him Jeremiah. So um, between the options, you can go to Babylon, land of luxury, right? They're not recently decimated or starved out or um, any of that stuff, right? You go back to a city that's at peace. War is happening far away from the capital um, you can go back there and live a life of luxury, or you can stay here in in Jerusalem, Ju- Judea, or rather Judah, excuse me, um, in what's a mess. And um, so the idea that Jeremiah might eschew luxury uh, and stick around um, among the mess of God's people is a beautiful picture of the gospel that is absolutely consistent with the rest of the biblical witness. Um, so it's a little bit uh, speculation on behalf of the motivation for why he stayed, um, but it's certainly a very um, uh, textual, almost predictable repl- response. Well, I think it does fit with what Jeremiah has done so far. But previously, before the fall of Jerusalem, he was imprisoned because he was accused of being a deserter, which of course he maybe he wants to keep that field he bought. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and he, he wasn't There's a deserter. Another textual option, right? That's right. Right. Well, and, and he even he even asks Zedekiah at one point in chapter thirty-seven when he's he's been put in prison. He asks Zedekiah, "Where where are all these false prophets right now? Remember the ones who are prophesying peace? Yeah. Where are they?" Jeremiah, he's still there. And so, yeah, it certainly does fit the the pattern that he's established to stick with the people of God and to there in Judah and to prophesy to them faithfully the word of God. So that that takes us through verse six. Let's read farther into chapter 40 to see more of the what now after Babylon has conquered Jerusalem. So we're in verse seven of chapter 40 now. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, 
and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon. They went to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Netaniah, Johanan, the son of Kariah, Sariah, the son of Tanhemeth, the sons of Ephi, the Netaphathite, Jezaniah, the son of the Machathite, they and their men. Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil, and store them in your vessels, and dwell in your cities that you have taken." Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. I think I'll I'll pause there. That was through verse 12 of the chapter. This is where, uh, for me, Pastor Cook, the the picture of post-destruction Jerusalem and Judah, this is where it really sort of my eyes started to open up and remember what's actually here. So Gedaliah has been appointed governor by Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be in charge of this, I guess, Babylonian province, you might consider. And and I think the the picture that I've got here is that sort of these, these groups of people who weren't actually, you know, ever defeated by the Babylonians in the sense that they hadn't been, you know, their cities hadn't been destroyed like Jerusalem was. They are all starting to come together. And it seems like it's almost like you, you've got a, there's going to be a recovery. It sounds like almost, is that kind of the picture we're given in these verses? Yeah. Yeah, that is. Uh, you get the kind of the, the refugees almost they're They're returning back. Um, now that the worst of the worst, you know, mission accomplished, um, there's no doubt that Babylon has won. Even the guy in charge of the area, the governor, Gedaliah, has been appointed in a set. I mean, Babylon's calling the shots here, but it's kind of a, yeah, we've done our damage. Uh, we don't need to waste any more time here. So they're, they're coming back together. Now, this coming back together, even under these circumstances, isn't without hope. Um, and so there's some promise. Um, there's some promise here. And uh, we're we're seeing that with uh, not only Gedaliah's um, advice that he he gives uh, seems to be in accord with the advice that Jeremiah gave way back in it should not that far back but back in chapter twenty nine um, and then we're we're told about the report about um, summer fruits and wines um, so things are looking not quite as dire as they were even in the previous chapter. Right. I mean, it's after the darkness that you've experienced in chapter 39 and thinking through some of the other texts in the scriptures that recount the fall of Jerusalem, I mean, it's just a great darkness. Not long after, there there is this bit of hope. I mentioned this yesterday, the fact that Gedaliah is over and over again, we're reminded that he's the, the son of Aikam, the son of Shaphan. 
Shaphan being the faithful secretary of faithful King Josiah. And that family has been very helpful throughout the book of Jeremiah in protecting Jeremiah as a prophet. That that seems to be a sign of hope that you've got this guy who's been put in charge. Okay, that, that seems good. And, and here you have, you know, a group of, of refugees, I think that's a good way to, to put it, coming together and, and Gedaliah is giving them wisdom that falls in line with what the Lord has told Jeremiah on several occasions. There, there is a, a bit of hope that, that seems to be coming here. And, and even to the point that, that, you know, they're gathering wine and summer fruits. So, I mean, almost a, it's not a complete return to quote normal life, but it, I mean, it has that, it has the, the feel of that almost like the, you know, what's the image that well, Jeremiah talked about the branch that that comes out of the line of David. It, it's it's got that sort of hopeful feel to it at this point. We're going to see that that quickly goes away, but but it's got that that hopeful feel to it. There's a there is a hope here. It seems. Yes, you're you're correct. I am. It, so much of this particular, if once you get past the names of the people. And Gedaliah's <laughs> establishment, and and the that um, you're right. The, the hope is absolutely there, and yet it's uh, very much contingent, um, and just setting us up for oh the aftershock, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is uh, well the trouble of the next the next verses. So any um, yeah. Well, I was just say with with this, you know this hopeful feel to this section any any theological reflections on on what we've read here i mean again the, the names are, are difficult we're doing the best i can here it's it's amazing how many names jeremiah has dr lessing had warned me about that at the very beginning of the of the study <laughs> what but in terms of theological reflections from this section it, and and the hope the coming back together as as the the people of judah here any any thoughts on on this section yeah the my biggest one's just the the people are gathering together uh and they're gathering together and we're we're told about the the fruit and the wine in in abundance now this this is borderline you know some allegorical kind of a typological interpretation here um but it's hard for me to not see a foreshadowing of the grace of God offered in the Lord's Supper which um obviously comes to us um in good days, but it is of particular hope uh, to Christians when we're walking through the dark days. And so coming through the death of a loved one, coming through the loss of a job, the loss of a house, you know, some natural disaster, etc. The people of God come together, they receive Christ's body and blood. Now, it's not enough to fill the stomach or even necessarily sate the palate, but it is an overabundance of God's grace. Overabundance. And we're, we're told here about this gathering of, um, you know, of wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Uh, and so um, that, uh, that's I just have a hard time not seeing the Lord's Supper here. Yeah, I mean, I think the, and the, the gathering of the people, I, I was reminded a little bit of the, and I, I know there's other pictures, but the one that came to my mind was in Isaiah chapter two, 
where the Lord, you know, gathers his people to Mount Zion and they're they're coming from all the nations flowing flowing back it, it seems and, and again I mean this this idea of, of people the people of God coming together from the the various places within the land and even you know from without of the land the the ones mentioned were Moab and and among the Ammonites and in Edom and these these foreign lands around the people they're all coming back now granted they're not coming to Zion at this point because Zion has been utterly destroyed and we, we don't want to forget that but you do see this you know sort of in miniature this maybe a mini fulfillment of some of these things a reminder that the lord has made these promises to his people and even in in very dark moments that he's not forgotten those promises he will fulfill them now this isn't the final fulfillment certainly because of what we're about to read and then into the coming chapters but even here in, in the darkness, there is that light shining that the Lord remembers his promises and he is keeping them and he gives them, a, I guess, a foretaste of it here in this, this very, even if it was very brief, this moment of peace after all that destruction. Yes, I will heartily affirm what you've said and beg you to move to the next section. I will gladly do so. We pick up again <laughs> in, in Jeremiah 40, verse 13. Now Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you not know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Kareah, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Please let me go and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life so that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said Jehohanan, the son of Kariah, you shall not do this thing for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. And that is where Jeremiah chapter 40 ends that that thought this this account will continue into chapter 41 but that's where we're we're leaving it off today so we've had this moment of of brief prosperity peace it seems in in the preceding verses and then suddenly there's this threat that the the wheels are going to come off Gedaliah, he's he's facing a conspiracy against him seems like everybody knows it except him and and he refuses to believe it uh, what do what do you see what's going on here in these verses pastor cook trouble that's what's going on here it is uh it is more of the same hmm. which is we have in Gedaliah the same problems that we had with um well the kings which is to say a word of warning has been offered to them uh, a solution. So prophets are telling the kings leading up to the destruction of Babylon, uh, God's coming, he's going to do this, repent, there's this solution of returning to the Lord that will fix the problem and not create the trouble. And all of that, of course, is ignored while people continue to do their own thing. False prophets are called true prophets, true prophets are called false prophets, it's a total mess. Jerusalem is destroyed. We have this brief respite and now we have a new guy who seems to exercise a little bit of common sense that's in agreement with Jeremiah's words regarding the governor uh, or the serving of, of Babylon and the peace that will follow. And uh, and now we're told, this time it's not from prophets, it's from commanders, 
of forces saying, hey, there's a conspiracy against your life. And, uh, and he um, will not, not only does he refuse to believe it, but in his refusal to believe it, he calls them all liars. So that's uh, it. It does it does not bode well, um, and uh, and that is disturbing on a, on a number of fronts. One of them to keep keep up is we might see this as Lutherans familiar with Luther's small catechism and say to ourselves. Well, hey, he is, def- you know, defending Ishmael, speaking well of him, explaining everything in the kindest way, you know. Um, so maybe it looks like Gedaliah is a man of integrity here. I, I, I would not take the text in that direction because we are told this is not just one man's report. Uh, this is a report of nine commanders or so. Um, so we have an accusation that's been established by multiple witnesses. And, uh, even in the midst of this council and established witness, um, the adherence to the advice is spurned and now accusations, uh, without witnesses are leveled against those who are trying to do the best thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I know you will speak on uh, chapter 41 coming up, but, you know, spoiler alert, Gedaliah dies. That's so. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly I mean, as is foretold. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the wheels, the wheels come off here, right? Just as, just as soon as you thought there was a, 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 a hope for the folks there in Judah, the wheels come right off. And, and this is the beginning of it. W- one thing that, you know, and I, I think, I think you're, your take on Gedaliah, as you said, it, it would be easy. Like, well, he, he sounds like a nice guy. I mean, that that seems like the way that we should handle it. And and yet, it it does fail to take into account, as you said, that there are all these witnesses who know what's going on. Gedaliah, in fact, seems to be the only one that doesn't know what's going on. One one thing that really strikes me, particularly given you know the beginning of this chapter, which focused on what Jeremiah was going to do. You know, Jeremiah is there in Mizpah with Gedaliah. And and again, spoiler alert, in the first couple of verses, Gedaliah is going to be murdered there in chapter 41. It, it doesn't seem that they've ever asked Jeremiah what they should do, which, you know, again, I mean, you feel sorry for them on, on one hand, but like, did you guys not not listen previously? Remember how Zedekiah got warned and warned and warned by Jeremiah over and over, you should surrender to the Babylonians? <laughs> Why don't they why don't they pause and and have Gedaliah say, "Hey Jeremiah, can you tell us what's going on? What's the word of the Lord here?" They they don't they don't ever think to ask it seems for the word of the Lord from Jeremiah at this point. Correct. And that um yeah, Gedaliah, not just those commanders, Gedaliah also. So he does encourage them to serve Babylon, right? It's kind of their emissary-appointed man. Hey, serve Babylon, it's going to work out well for you. But, but Gedaliah never directs the people to the Lord. He never directs them to the Lord. And that's, uh, that's, not, good. that's not good either. So, yes, Jeremiah has said these things about serving Babylon, but he's never ceased to proclaim... Uh, a, the importance of trusting 
and trusting in the Lord. So we have a we have a few things we just slow down where we recognize oh, things aren't as they seem. They're certainly not as good as they seem, and uh, and so this conspiracy it's it's not um, it's not well it's not good. It, it does kind of seem to be um, pouring salt on a wound here. Uh, Jerusalem has fallen. We're now kind of gathering in Mizpah. It appears things are getting better, and it's as though God says, "No, I'm not even." You're going to put your hope in that now, you know? Like, we're going to just stamp that out right away, and we'll just make sure you realize that, you know, hope is in me. Don't put your trust in princes. It's it's in God. It's in, it's in the Lord and, and his uh, faithfulness to his promises. Hmm. In in terms of just the, I guess, the, the politics of what we see here, is, is there any any ideas to why say the king of the Ammonites is, is out to do this? Is this more maybe just rebellion against Babylon by other small nations around or in, in terms of just the, the politics, do we have any indication as to why this is taking place? Uh, there might be, there might be one. I didn't look into kind of the geopolitical politics there, obviously Ammon and um, I shouldn't say obviously it, it's worth pointing out that Ammon and, Jerusalem have, have never gotten along. Um, so this is always a, a bit of a mess and in a way that harkens to current debate in the United States. Uh, Ammon and Israel uh, disagree severely on the history of where everything went wrong. And you can read about that in the story of Jephthah in Judges where he says, you know, the Israelites just wanted to pass through your land to get here, and the Ammonites are, no, you wanted to take us over. And so it's kind of who's rewriting history to accomplish which ends, um, et cetera. So the idea that the Ammonites would do something to, uh, you know, scuttle or otherwise sabotage the health of Israel, that shouldn't come as, that shouldn't come as a surprise. But there, I can't point to a specific um, experience that's contemporaneous with uh, the fall of Jerusalem that would explain explain this particular event. But their their general history of relationship between these two nations, it's not terribly surprising to see the Ammonites Correct. kick Jerusalem while they're down in just a, another attempt to to get back at them, these two rival nations, this, this fits well with that history. And, and so, yeah, we, we see just at that moment where it appears there's a glimmer of hope. Things are, are looking pretty good. The people of, of Judah, I think maybe they can go back to where we started then pastor cook. I think the people who should have learned the lesson the most have already shown that they, they haven't learned the lesson because they're, they're still engaged in, you know, these, these, political machinations of the day, you know, who, who can take power, who can keep power and, and, you know, get is going to try to just sort of ignore it rather than listening to any warning all the while ignoring the word of the Lord. It, it seems that by the end of this chapter, it, again, in this sort of now what here we are really not all that different other than the land has been sacked and there's just a bunch of refugees, but in terms of their, their theological, thoughts, the, the way that they're, they're looking to the Lord or not looking to the Lord, things don't look all that good for them. So that's where we, we leave it today. The story does continue, obviously, into chapter 41. We've, we've heard a little bit, and we'll save more of that uh, for the next guest. 
Pastor Cook, we've got about four minutes on the morning. And again, we're in one of those sections of, of scripture that, that, as we said, is maybe not all that familiar to us. And yet it is God's word to us. And we know that God's word gives us Christ throughout it. So, so as we, we wrap things up this morning, how is it in Jeremiah chapter 40, where is Christ? Well, God's word is still with his people. Um, even in this just, you know, unparalleled disaster of the destruction of Babylon, the word of the Lord didn't cease to come to them. Jeremiah is still there. He's still preaching. Um, and, uh, I mean, the chapter begins, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So God's word is still there. Um, Additionally, we saw how Jeremiah's decision to stay in Jerusalem as opposed to move on to um, the luxury of Babylon or the relative luxury of Babylon is a great um, kind of uh, shadow or um, yeah, foreshadow of Christ who uh, comes down from heaven, humbles himself, taking the form of a servant, obedient unto death, even death on the cross, uh, for the for the sake of, of people. And um, additionally then, when we see Nebuchadnezzar um, speaking, we have uh, a reminder that God, uh, in many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, we're told in the beginning of Hebrews. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, so we see how uh, Nebuchadnezzar serves as one of those many in various ways, um, but we can we can look to we can look to Christ in our own day. Additionally, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was used at all should point us to God, who works through means. Um, and anytime we remember that, we rejoice to know. Uh, think of think of it this way. The word of the Lord coming through this captain of a foreign army is very odd. It's almost unexpected. It catches us off guard. We're like, wait a minute. I, this, there's some confusion here. Maybe even a little of, uh, I think maybe, but, uh, but I'm not sure. So there's not a lot of confidence in that. Our God works through means. And as it pertains to you and I, he works dependently, without confusion, complete assurance and confidence through means. He preaches, you know, through his, the preaching of the word, uh, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper. So we can, uh, we don't have to worry about, oh, I wonder if well, this thing I saw on social media or this report I heard on the news or this person who dropped by the house unsolicited, I, I wonder if this is really God trying to get a message to me. You don't have to guess about those things. God has given his message to you in very clear forms of faithful preaching of his word, baptism, Lord's Supper. Um, so it, it takes a little bit, uh, you know, to, it's not that Christ is absent from the text, um, but it requires a, a little bit of a work. And before you know it, you're, oh, yeah, this resonates and rings true to our experience. And, um, and that's, uh, that's a good thing. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. 
If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature there allows you to send up to a 60 second message to us. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.